Please be seated and take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 12. Today's our last day in the book of Psalms. Lord willing, Pastor Greg will be preaching next week. And then in two weeks, Lord willing, we will start a new series in the book of Galatians, which I've titled Joy Killers. So get a jump start and start reading the book of Galatians. Psalm 12, let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for who you are and for your word. Thank you for the gospel that you loved us when we were broken, rebellious sinners. That you sent your son to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve. And we thank you for all that that means. If someone's here today and they don't know you, would you grant them repentance that they may turn to Jesus and see him as beautiful, that he would be the treasure of their lives. And those of us who are believers here, even now, God, may we see Jesus in Psalm 12. May we stand in amazement. How beautiful he is. Help us now by the power of the Spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's our last sermon, as I said, in the series that we've done this summer in the book of Psalms. So as we come to the last sermon in this series, let me brief you, if you don't mind, indulge me. Let me brief you on the first ever episode of The Twilight Zone, in case you haven't seen it. I think the first episode of The Twilight Zone, which is called Where Is Everybody?, I think it can help us to understand the last psalm that we will look at in our summer series on the book of Psalms. In the first episode of The Twilight Zone, a man finds himself walking along a dirt road towards a diner. Inside the diner, he finds a jukebox playing loudly, coffee that is still hot on the stove, but no one else is there. He inquires for some breakfast, but no chef or waitress is to be found. He's dressed in an Air Force flight suit, but he does not remember who he is or how he got there. After leaving the diner, he walks to a nearby town. The town seems deserted, but everywhere the man goes, it seems uh, that someone had been there recently. There's food cooking on a stove. There's water dripping in a sink. There's a cigar burning in an ashtray. And he grows more and more unsettled as he wanders through the empty town, looking for someone, anyone to talk to, all the while having the strange feeling that he's being watched. He finally collapses after many hours. It's nighttime now. Collapses next to a street crossing, and he presses the button labeled walk. It is then revealed that the walk button is actually a panic button. The man is really a training astronaut named Mike Ferris, confined to an isolation room located within an aircraft hangar. For 484 hours and 36 minutes, Mike Ferris has been tested to see if he can stay sane while cooped up in a small spacecraft for the duration of a trip to the moon. The town was a complete hallucination, an escape valve for his sensory-deprived mind. It's a picture 
of what life is like. It's a picture of what life is like when disciples try to go it alone. When we hide away in our isolation rooms, not connected to the church, not connected to other disciples. You were made You were created by God to live in community with other disciples. You were made by God, created by God to live in community where other disciples, where you use your lips to talk about Jesus with one another. Our big idea today is just straight application out of the text. I hope to explain throughout the sermon, and I hope you see it in the sermon, why I say to you today, make it a priority to be busy making disciple-making disciples. Make it a priority in your life to be busy making disciple-making disciples. I think that's the takeaway from Psalm 12, for us today at Grace, and I think it's David's takeaway as well. As we look at the historical context in which David penned this psalm, we'll see parallels with our own day and time. And the response for us should be, just like David, a renewed focus on discipleship. A renewed focus on God's Word. And discipleship, like prayer that we saw last week, is another area where we need help as a church. So let's get busy with Psalm 12. Look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Save, O Lord, save, O Yahweh. For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Psalm 12 reads like a current newspaper It's as if David got in a time machine and landed in 2013, visited a few churches, and then started recording his thoughts. And Psalm 12, I believe, is what he would have written down in his journal had he visited many churches today in 2013. David looks around Israel and notices that something is missing. The godly have vanished. No, there was no Old Testament rapture that happened It's just that the godly people are few and far between. David is just saying, where is everybody? Where are all the disciples? Where are all the godly people? And the Hebrew word here for the godly one is the Hebrew word chasid. It's a word related to another Hebrew word that you should know by now, the Hebrew word chesed, which is God's faithful, loyal, covenant love that he has for his people. So the Hasid, you can see how it's related to the same word, are those who are in covenant with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, because of his Hesed, his loyal covenant, steadfast love. The Hasid are those who are in covenant with the Lord, and they love him, and they are faithful to him. But like the church today, there were some people who were a part of the covenant of God, part of the covenant people of God, but they weren't really a part. Some in David's day had received the mark of the covenant, circumcision, but their hearts weren't really circumcised. They were a part of Israel, but they weren't really a part of Israel. And guess what? We have people like this today. They come to church. They participate. They may have even been baptized. They may even be members of the church 
but they aren't truly saved. They aren't born again. They are not adopted children of God. The reformers refer to this distinction as the visible and the invisible church. You can read about it in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Questions 61 through 65 describe in detail the visible and the invisible church. There are people that you can see at church. They are a part of the church, but they aren't truly a child of God. That's what David is saying in verses 1 through 2. The godly ones are few and far between. There are many who claim allegiance to Yahweh, but they show they don't truly belong to Him by the way that they use their lips. Their lips indicate that they don't really belong to the Lord. So how do they use their lips? Look at verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. These people are a part of the community of God. They're a part of Israel, but they aren't really a part of the community of God, the people of God. And they prove that by the way that they use their lips. They lie to one another. They flatter. The Hebrew is a lip of smoothness with a heart and a heart they speak. With a lip of smoothness, with a heart and a heart they speak. Their lips are smooth, not because they use chapstick. Their lips are smooth, meaning flattering words just seem to roll off their lips. Their lips are greased so that flattery just rolls out with the greatest of ease. But their words of flattery don't line up with their hearts. They have two hearts according to the Hebrew. With a heart and a heart they speak. Their real heart is filled with evil thoughts. But the heart that comes out through their lips is one of flattery. In other words, they are fake. They aren't real. Oh, their lips look good. They've applied Christian chapstick. Understand that. But who they really are, you can't see. So how does David respond to all of this hypocrisy that he sees in Israel? Well, if you've been with us through the first 11 Psalms, you're not going to be surprised the way David responds. It will not surprise you that David prays that the Lord would show up with a pocket knife. It will not surprise you that David asked the Lord to start acting like a surgeon. Look at verses 3 through 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now, don't go and get upset with David. He's not some bloodthirsty plastic surgeon wannabe. He's asking the Lord to perform lip and tongue surgery on his enemies. Now, David's not bloodthirsty. What he's asking Jesus to do is to show up and silence these arrogant people who are running around and running their mouths. They claim to be a part of the people of God, but they really don't want the Lord to have any authority over, our, over their lives. That's why they say, who is master over us? Is Yahweh? Yahweh's not master over us. The Lord is not our master. They just keep running their mouths. 
I think David would agree with John Calvin. John Calvin said, I consider looseness with words no less of a defect than looseness of the bowels. These people make great boasts. They claim to be the people of God, but they claim that no one can be master over them. In other words, there's no objective truth for these people. God's word is not authoritative. They think that everybody should be able to live any way that they want. They think that everybody should be able to go into whichever bathroom they want to go to in the public school. No one should be able to say to any person that they are in the wrong by what they say, by what they do, by how they live. And they say that with our tongues and with our lips, we will prevail. In other words, what they're saying is that their thoughts and their ideas are what govern their lives. They don't need the Lord's law, his moral law to be hanging over their heads. God's word and God's ways are too restrictive for these people. They need no master. They need no one telling them that there is a right and there is a wrong. It's as if David were peeking in on our world. Are you sure you haven't been reading our newspapers, David? You're talking like you've been living in 2013. Psalm 12 is just reminding us, make it a priority to be busy making disciple-making disciples. Somewhere along the way, in David's day, the word of God slipped out of the hands of the people of God, and they began being shaped by the world. They didn't want the Lord to rule over them. And isn't that what we're facing in the church today? The only way to turn the tide is, one, to pray, which is what we saw last week, that it's time to stop making excuses and time to start making time to pray. But the second way we turn the tide is with a renewed focus on discipleship. We must make it our task to do what Jesus said with his lips in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, when the church universal when the church local, the local church, when we start resembling the world and we wonder where all the godly people have gone, when we wonder where all the disciples are, when we ask, where is everybody? Then we must renew our focus on prayer and discipleship. We must get passionate about teaching disciples to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That's how we respond when the world has crept into the church. That's how we turn the tide. But we aren't the only ones who respond when the church takes its cues from the world instead of the word of God. The Lord responds to this crisis too. And it's appropriate. After all, it's his church. This is his church, his bride, his people. And that's what he says in verse 5. He will respond in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan 
I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The Lord now speaks to the situation in David's day. David's response to the situation was to pray and to ask God to save. He says it in verse 1, save, O Lord. In other words, David is saying, come clean house. Yahweh's response is that he will respond. He will come and clean house. And his response gives us another clue as to what was happening in David's day. The poor were being plundered and abused, and therefore they groaned, they longed. The Hebrew is they panted for relief. Yahweh had heard and would respond to the way these Israelites were treating fellow Israelites. Because God's word had lost its place in the hearts of his people, and justice went out the window. Justice was taken out with the weekly trash. Had the word of the Lord been valued and cherished by Israel, then those passages that spoke to caring for the poor and the needy would have been obeyed. And this is why the Lord says, I will now arise. But the now may not be immediate. It may not happen just as David writes Psalm 12. And we'll see why in a minute in verses 7 through 8. In verses 7 through 8, we will see that the Lord preserves his people. And even though the Lord preserves his people, that does not mean that the wicked don't walk around strutting their stuff. So verse 5 should probably be translated with an English future tense. I will say. Verse 5 is telling us what the Lord will say on the day that he decides to intervene and help the poor and the needy. In other words, on the day that Yahweh decides to intervene on behalf of his people, verse 5 is what he will say on that day. He will say, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The word longs there is the word for pant, not the other one that I said. Correct myself. I will place him in the safety for which he pants. So David is encouraging what's left of the people of God. Not so much that God's word will immediately come true that very day. He's not saying the Lord's going to show up and help the poor as soon as I finish writing Psalm 12, but that the people of God can certainly rely on that promise to be fulfilled one day in the future. And then David explains why the people of God can trust God's promise to intervene even if it is sometime far off in the future. David and the people of God can trust God's word because God's word is true and it is pure. Look at verse 6. The words of Yahweh, the words of the Lord, are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In contrast to the lies that these wicked Israelites are spreading, David reminds us that God's word is pure, it is true, it is reliable, it can be trusted completely. What God has promised, he will bring to pass. You can bank on that. And that's what David says as he closes out this psalm. Even though things look dark, God is faithful to his people. Even though David is asking, where is everybody? Where are all the godly people? Where are all the disciples in Israel? He reminds us, even when he asks that question, he reminds us that God is still faithful to his promises. Look at verses 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. 
your promises, your pure words. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. What David is saying is that the Lord will protect and preserve his people, even while everything seems like it's going to pot, even when the laws change and we don't agree with them. David is saying that we can trust that the Lord is, will be faithful to his promises even before the Lord starts acting out, verse 5, even before he comes, he will still preserve his church. So verse 7 should be our response of faith and trust. That you will keep your words, O Lord. That should be our response of faith and trust when we read the promises of verses 5 and 6 when God says, I will arise. In verse 7, you will keep your words, O Lord. That should be our response of trust and faith when we see the wicked in verse 8, when we see verse 8 all around us, when we see the wicked prowling, and we see vileness exalted in this world, even in the church, God will preserve his people. He will keep his promises. Jesus will keep building his church in the midst of this wicked world. Jesus will keep building his church even when the church starts to look like the world. He will come and start cleaning house as 1 Peter 4.17 suggests. When vileness is exalted in the world. When everybody gets whatever bathroom they want in our schools. When vileness is exalted even in the church. As it is in many churches today. The Lord will guard his bride. He will keep his promises to her. And he gave us a promise in Matthew 28, straight from the lips of Jesus himself. Let me read it for the second time. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do you change the landscape? How do you change the landscape in this country? How do you change the landscape in the church? You make it a priority to be busy making, disciple-making disciples. That's exactly what David was calling for in his day in Psalm 12. He wanted Israel to quit believing what it heard the world say with its lips. He wanted to see Israel return to the word of God, the pure words of God, to return what God had said with his lips. He wanted to see discipleship happen. And that's what Psalm 12 is saying with its lips. And that's what commentator Alan Ross says with his lips in his commentary on Psalm 12. He says, God's word is pure. It is truth. John 17, 17. What it reports is completely accurate. What it teaches is proper and right. What it promises is sure. People may not always like what the Bible says, but it tells the truth. They therefore can build their lives on it. 
This is the obvious application from this passage. If God's word is perfect and true, then God's people must read it, learn it, trust it, live by it, and share it with others who need to hear the truth. In other words, the church needs to be busy making disciple-making disciples. Making disciples who know how to go and make disciples. And we're here as elders and pastors to equip you so that you can make disciples. So what are some ways that we can be busy making disciple-making disciples? We must first understand that discipleship happens in a community. It does not just happen with you and Jesus and your Bible in an isolation room somewhere doing what is commonly called a quiet time. I'm not against that. Discipleship happens. You need that. You need to get with Jesus and pray and read his word. But it happens with people living in community, calling one another to follow Jesus every day. Calling one another to believe and submit themselves to God's word. Calling one another to rehearse the gospel. And that means that discipleship in community will happen several ways. First, it'll happen one-on-one, with one-on-one relationships. Sometimes discipleship will happen when a a mature disciple, a mature believer, takes a younger believer or two or three younger believers under their wing and they personally disciple them. They teach them about Jesus. They teach them about the gospel. And I hope you have been on either of those ends in your lifetime. I hope you're doing that now. I hope you are personally discipling, discipling someone right now, all of you. It's time that we stop making excuses. We pray and we ask God to bring someone along our path that either we can disciple or that we can be discipled by. Imagine that. Do you think God would answer that prayer? What if today you say, God, I'm not discipling anyone in my life. Would you bring someone across my path so I can disciple them? After reading Matthew 28 two times, do you think Jesus would be like, ah, fine. I think he would be like, yeah. I've been waiting for you to ask that. Or maybe you want to be discipled by someone. I think if you pray, Jesus, I need to be discipled. Send someone across my path. I think Jesus would be like, sure, I'll answer that. The second way, let us know, by the way, if you want to be discipled or you want to, be, uh, you want to disciple someone, let us know. We'll try to hook you up with someone. A second way discipleship happens in community is in groups, small groups, Sunday school classes, Bible studies. And this is our, the reason why we're pushing small groups in Grace Seminary and working and getting involved in serving here at Grace right now. So please, please, if you're not in a small group, get plugged in with other sinners who desperately need Jesus just as much as you do. You were made for this. You were made for community, but some of you live like the man in the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone episode, which is called, Where Is Everybody? And you're just running around and you're not connected to other believers. You just come on Sunday for the music, the sermon, and the coffee, and then you're gone. 
and then it's, I'll see you next week. You were not made to do life this way. So I beg you, get plugged in. Don't worry about your struggles. We are all broken sinners who desperately need Jesus just as much as you do. We are seriously messed up, just like you. Isn't that the group you want to be in? A group that comes together and says, man, we need Jesus. Let's rehearse the gospel together again. That's what discipleship is about, coming alongside with other believers and say, let's turn our eyes towards Jesus. Let's turn our eyes to a God who loves us unconditionally and cannot stay away from sinners like us. So please, join a small group made up of broken sinners just like you. Or sign up for a Grace Seminary class. These classes are not official seminary classes. You're not getting credit. It's just our name for this program that we have here. These classes in Grace Seminary are designed for you to learn God's Word, to learn the truth in God's Word, to take what you learn, and then to share it with other people. It's one of the ways that we as a church, as pastors and elders, are equipping you for the work of the ministry. You can sign up out in the hallways. Back on the, the wall right over here, there's two large billboards. One with Grace Seminary information. The class is there. The other one for small groups. You can sign up in the middle of the halls here. Lots of opportunities to get involved and serve here at Grace. But look at a Grace Seminary class if you've not signed up. One of the classes is Gospel Deeps, Reveling in the Excellencies of Jesus by Jared Wilson. That's the book we're looking at to go deeper down in the gospel. Who doesn't want to go deeper down into the gospel and be mesmerized by how beautiful and excellent Jesus Christ is? Another book is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. You're married, you struggle. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know you do. And if you say you don't, I will call you a liar in church. We all struggle. Married people, do you know the meaning of marriage? If you can't answer that right now, sign up. For this class. It is an excellent, one of the best books I've ever read on marriage by Tim Keller. Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Be Basic by Warren Wiersbe, looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Reasons for Belief, Norm Geisler, an apologetics class. How do you deal with people who say there's no authority like God's word over our lives? Financial Peace University by Dave Ramsey. Disciplines of a Godly Young Man by Kent Hughes. It's a father-son class that Pastor James is teaching. Look out there on that billboard, sign a card, drop it in the basket. Take one of these classes. Join the discussion. Be discipled. Learn. And then go share what you learn with other people. Go disciple others. Go use your lips to talk about Jesus with other disciples. Understand this, Grace. If you haven't caught the point yet, you were made for community. You were made to use your lips to talk to other disciples about Jesus. Christianity is not a solo project. Disciples are supposed to live together in community with one another, talking about Jesus and his word. Sadly, though, many Christians live like that man in the twilight zone. They're sequestered away in their rooms all to themselves. They've detached themselves from relationships, and they're assuming that they can live the Christian life apart from gospel-centered relationships. Let me be blunt. You can't. You cannot 
live the Christian life apart from community, apart from gospel-centered relationships, apart from the local church. You can't. There's a whole lot of one another's in the Bible that you can't do by yourself. So join a small group. Get involved in some ministry and serve. Jump in a Grace Seminary class. Do a Bible study here at Grace. Get some people and start one at Starbucks or Panera or wherever. Just get in some group with some disciples and start using your lips to talk about Jesus and his word. One-on-one is where it happens. In groups, the third way is spontaneous. Discipleship also happens when it's not structured, when it's not planned. Sometimes it is planned, but most of the time it's spontaneous. It's you running into someone at Starbucks, you running into someone at the grocery store, and they share a struggle that they have, and you come back with a promise from God's word, and you encourage them that they can believe it and cling to it, and you pray for them, and you call them to rehearse the gospel. You call them to follow Jesus because he is their master. That's where a majority of discipleship happens. This happens when you lay in bed and your spouse is stressed. Discipleship happens then when you say, honey, we can trust God's word. Here's a promise from his word. We can believe it and cling to it. Let's pray. That's discipleship. It's when you put your kids to bed at night and it's, I'm scared, daddy. You can trust that Jesus is here. He is with you to the end of the age, always. That's more often than not when discipleship happens, when it's just spontaneous. Each of us calling each other to rehearse the gospel and to follow Jesus. Fourth way is in families. If you have kids, this is the primary way that you will make disciples. Parents, you were called to be the primary disciple maker with your children. Not Michelle, not James, not Randy, not Awana, not VBS. You have been Gifted with that opportunity to disciple your own children, to raise them up in the faith, to tell them about Jesus, to say we're in covenant with the Lord. This is what we do with our lives. The church is here to help you, but we are not the main disciple makers. But you need to have your kids here. Listen, if your kids are not involved in the youth group, you are missing out. They are missing out on a connection to the local church. Discipleship just isn't families. It's families working with the local church to raise disciples. If your kids are not in the youth group, they need to be there. Your kids need to be rebuked and challenged by one of their peers when one of the leaders says, don't skateboard over there, and your child goes to do it. They need one of their peers to come along and say, the leader said, we don't skateboard over there. Let's submit to authority. Let's follow Jesus, and let's go inside. They need to be on the receiving end of that, or they need to be giving that. They need to learn how to make disciples amongst their peers at youth group. Your kids are missing out. If you don't have them plugged into the youth group, if you don't have them plugged in to VBS when it comes around, if you don't have them plugged into Awana, they need to learn how to live with other believers their age. Yes, at home, but also here in the church. If you need help, any of this, how you make disciples in your home, what material do you use, how do you go about it, please email us. We will point you to resources. There are tons of resources. Those are just a few ways that we can be involved in discipleship. So please, let's not make any more excuses. We are here to help you. You have no more excuses. There are opportunities to learn. 
You have resources at your fingertips, and you especially have no excuse because Jesus said that he would be with you. He will help you. He's promised to do that. So why don't you let me read with my lips for the third time the promise that fell from the lips of Jesus, his promise to help you be busy making disciples, making disciples. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 for the third time, because if you're like me, I need to hear things over and over again because I'm a little thick-headed because of my sin. This is what Jesus said. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. David prayed in Psalm 12, verse 1, Save, O Lord, save Oh, Yahweh. And God has answered his prayer because he sent his son, Jesus. What's interesting about the Hebrew word save here? It's the Hebrew word yasha. It's where the name Joshua comes from. It's the Hebrew word to save. It, Jesus, Jesus' name in, in Hebrew is a form of Joshua, Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And God has saved many of us here, broken, rebellious, fallen sinners. God has answered Psalm 12, 1, because he sent his son, and his son has come. Lived the life we could never live, died the death we all deserve. God raised him from the dead, and now he says, I have all authority, and because I have all authority, you go and make disciples of all nations. That means He is with us. It means there's no wiggle room when it comes to whether or not you're involved in discipleship. Jesus said to do it. He said that he would be with you and he has sent the promised Holy Spirit. It's time to make it a priority to be busy making disciples, making disciples. Do you want to change the landscape in this country? You start making disciples. You know how to make disciples. You want to change the landscape here at Grace? You start making disciples, making disciples. Do you want to change the landscape in your home? You start making disciples, making disciples. Imagine if we became a church and truly made disciples, that by the time our kids are 18 or 19 and they go off to college or whatever they go to do, they leave home, what if every kid that left here knew how to make disciples? I want us to be known as that kind of church. Because the reality is that many churches are not making disciples. In fact, a few weeks ago, I heard from one of my friends of a very large mega church that has a very famous pastor whose sermons are heard all around the world, translated into all kinds of languages. He's one of the best communicators, the best preachers out there. They recently asked this question at the church that he's a pastor of. Where are all the disciples? Where is everybody? They looked around and realized that everyone came to hear this guy preach. But that was it. And so for the last 15 years, they weren't really making disciples, but just sermon listeners. I don't want that for us. I want us to be known as a church that makes disciples. So let me ask you, who are you discipling? Are you actively discipling them? Don't say you're discipling your kids if you really aren't. Stop making excuses 
Let's stop thing, saying things like, I can't do it. I don't know how. I'm not good at it. I don't know what I'm doing. It's time to stop thinking that way. And if you've dropped the ball in the discipleship area, no shame, no guilt at all. Just ask God right now to renew in you a passion to start it again. Don't beat yourself up. If your kid is 16 and you've never really discipled them, don't despair. Start today. It's not too late. Psalm 12 is telling us, here's how you use your lips. Start discipling people. Start sharing God's word. Start sharing the words of the Lord. And how does God use his lips? He speaks pure words. That's what David said in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God speaks pure words. And he wants his people to take his words and share them with others and talk about them at the dinner table or at the coffee shop or wherever. At the heart of discipleship is teaching others what Jesus commanded, teaching others God's pure words. Do you want to see change come? Start sharing God's word. David recognized that since the godly had disappeared, the only way to turn the tide would be a renewed emphasis on the pure words of the Lord, a renewed emphasis on the word of God, a renewed emphasis on discipleship. And that's exactly what we need here at Grace, a renewed emphasis on making disciple, making disciples. That's why we exist. And yet many Christians just come to church and they Treat it like an isolation room, like the man on the twilight zone. The commanding officer in the final scene of the first episode of the twilight zone sums up humanity's need for fellowship and community when he says this. You see, we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can supply microfilm for reading, recreation, even movies of a sort. We can pump oxygen in and waste material out. But there's one thing we can't simulate. That's a very basic need. Man's hunger for companionship. The barrier of loneliness, that's one thing we haven't licked yet. You weren't made to walk alone. You were made to live in community with other disciples. But some of you treat the church like this is an isolation room. Pump me in some good music. Pump me in a good sermon. Pump me in some great coffee. I don't need anyone. I can exist here. It's time for you to hit the panic button, the help button, and say, help me, Jesus, to get involved because I need people. How do you use your lips? Use your lips to talk about Jesus with other people. Use your lips to share God's word with others. Don't use your lips to make excuses. Use your lips to start making disciple-making disciples. Let's use our lips to pray and sing now. We're going to sing How He Loves. It's crucial that we sing this and embrace this song. The only way that we ever figure out how to use our lips is the only way we'll ever be successful at how do we use our lips is if we understand how much God loves us, how much Jesus loves us. So let's sing how he loves us, and then we will leave here knowing how to use our lips as we're motivated by the gospel and empowered by the Spirit of God. We'll use our lips to start making disciples, making disciples. And if you feel scared or inadequate, 
to make disciples, use your lips to ask someone for help. Someone here or someone in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is pure. It is true. It is right. And every single one of us at some point in our life have said our lips will rule us. Our lips are with us. No one will be master over us because we're sinners, God. We even think that way once we've been born again. Forgive us. Thank you that you're patient and that you love us. Would you make us a church that hangs and clings to the very words that fell from the lips of your son? He has all authority. He's commissioned us to make disciples and he is with us. May we be a church that clings to that promise, to that pure word. And then may we leave this building each week going out into the mission field, sharing the hope of the gospel with unbelievers and encouraging believers to rehearse the gospel. Oh, how you love us. It is what catapults us into service. In Jesus' name, amen.